open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Um, before we dive into the word today, I just I want to make a comment about um, I want to make a comment about sexual assault. Um, this past week, we've seen um, that the topic has dominated the news. Everything from Bill Cosby being sentenced to state prison in Pennsylvania to the issue of the Supreme Court justice or the potential Supreme Court justice who has been accused of uh, sexual crimes. Um, not my intention to adjudicate all of that, but I do want to say this. I know that statistically speaking, there is an overwhelming percentage of women in particular in America who have been sexually assaulted. And I've never told anyone. Um, and I know that this was a difficult week for many people as they watched this unfold in the news. I just want to say, if you have been abused, physically abused or sexually abused, um, that I, I would invite you to come and talk to Sonia, talk to me, talk to your church family. Um, I don't know if America will hear you, but I can't promise you that your church will hear you and that we will believe you and that we will advocate for you. And if you wish, we will seek justice on your behalf. That is my promise to you. Okay? Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. Today we're going to cover verses 4 to 15. Colossians 2 verses 4 to 15. The title of our message today is Deep Roots. Deep Roots. We're continuing our series in the book of Colossians called A Theory of Everything. A Theory of Everything. And so what we want to do today is we want to seek to go a little bit deeper just in who Jesus is and apply him to everything. So let's look at verse 4. And we're going to read through verse 15. Why don't you read it out loud with me? You should have a, a copy of God's word in front of you. And it's the same version that I'm reading from. So let's read it out loud together. It's also on the screen. Um, I think we've got the verses on the screen, right, Lorenzo? There we go. So let's begin at verse 4. Let's read out loud together, nice and slow. We'll get to verse 15. Here we go, verse 4. I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you because you fight for us. You are the powerful warrior God who has successfully and is successfully fighting on behalf of your people. I pray that today we would understand this and that we would enter in to your victory. In Jesus' name I pray. Angels and demons. Two words that evoke feelings of wonder and fear. Faith and doubt. Hope and despair. Comfort and terror. Belief and skepticism. Many of us have grown up believing in angels. At least the guardian angels that we think kept us safe as children. Some of us perhaps also grew up with a belief in dark angels, what we normally call demons. Perhaps your views about the spirit realm have been shaped by your parents, or maybe by your cultural background. Perhaps your views were shaped by grisly television shows and sensational movies like The Exorcist. Perhaps you grew up believing that there was an invisible world just outside of our perception, but perhaps somewhere along the way, you grew up, you became educated, you studied science, you quit believing. Because let's face it, it all sounds rather fantastic, right? Angels and demons, Lucifer, magic, supernatural battles. It sounds rather unbelievable. Reminds me of a new television show, a CBS comedy called God Friended Me. Now, I'm not endorsing it, uh, but I did watch the pilot episode this week. It's the story of an atheist who runs a podcast about atheism, only to be friended on Facebook by someone claiming to be God. I have no idea where the show is going. I don't know where the writers are, are taking this. It was just a pilot episode. But I do know that like the podcaster in the show, many of us have simply lost faith in the invisible. Maybe we want to believe, but we just can't. Or maybe we just don't want to believe. If you have lost faith in the supernatural, then this sermon is for you. For some of us, though, our cultural background doesn't allow us to lose touch with the supernatural. Far from it. Some of us are steeped in this world. We've witnessed the bizarre practices of voodoo, and Santeria. And as a result, some of us fear the supernatural. We're worried that our kids are going to be tormented by demons, that a spell will be placed upon our home, that our families will be destroyed by powerful supernatural forces, that a voodoo doll will lead to a broken marriage and a lost job. If you live in the fear of the supernatural, then this sermon is also for you. Whether you believe in angels and demons, or whether you fear angels and demons, or whether you just 
are agnostic about the whole thing. This passage before us is for you. Paul begins by linking his new topic with what Sean talked about last week, the mystery of Christ's rescue of the Gentiles. Remember how Sean talked last week about how there was this mystery, there was this truth that was kind of hidden in the past, but now in Jesus it's fully revealed. And the, the mystery is that Jesus is for all people. He's not just for the Jewish people. Yes, he's for them, but he's also for the Gentiles. That's everybody else. Chances are that's all of us, unless anybody here has a Jewish heritage. We're Gentiles, okay? And Jesus comes, and the mystery is that Jesus is for both Jews and Gentiles. And this was a mystery. It was something that wasn't previously known. And so last week, Sean kind of unpacked that for us. And so Paul, in verse 4, says, I'm saying this. What? I'm saying what? Well, what he's just been talking about, which was the mystery of the Gentiles being included into God's plan. I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. Have you ever ever heard uh, two people arguing? Maybe you watched a political debate or, or maybe you're like me and you like to watch uh, uh, sports shows and two people are arguing over who's the better quarterback and, and uh, this guy says, oh, you know, Tom Brady is the better quarterback. And then this guy's like, no, Aaron Rodgers is the better quarterback and they're arguing. And the first person makes their case and you're like, oh, that sounds reasonable. Maybe Tom Brady's a better quarterback. And then, then the other guy makes his case, and you're like, oh, maybe, maybe Aaron Rodgers is a better quarterback. And, and there are these reasonable arguments. Paul said, hey, there are reasonable arguments out there. I don't want you to be deceived with arguments that merely sound reasonable but are not truly reasonable. I have taught you about the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's plan so that you will understand that you as Gentiles have a sure footing within God's plan so that you will not be led astray by arguments that merely sound reasonable. He said, I'm absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit. I'm rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are in the strength of your faith in Christ. You see, because God's plan was to offer Jesus to all people, Paul warned his readers to resist any religious system that didn't have Jesus at its center. To resist any religious system that didn't have Jesus at its center. And it could be a, a well-organized system of religion or it could be urban street legends and everything in between. Paul said, resist anything that doesn't have Jesus at the center. And this is the task. This is the big idea of this sermon is that God calls his people to resist the seductive powers of our age. Jesus calls his people to resist the seductive powers of this age. What Paul said in verses 6 and 7 is here's how we do it. We stay rooted in Jesus. We put down deep roots in who Jesus is. Look at verse 6. It says, so then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. You've taken that first step of faith. You have begun following Jesus. So he's saying, keep it up. Continue to live in him. Being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Paul loves to mix his metaphors. He really does. Uh, here he talks about uh, an agricultural metaphor being, you know, putting down roots. And then he, then he switches to architecture and he talks about being built up in him and, and established. And that's kind of a judicial term that he's using. Uh, it's, a, it's a Greek word that kind of has a court image. So Paul, Paul likes to mix his metaphors. But basically what he's saying is... Keep the faith. Stay rooted in Jesus Christ. You have, you have begun on this journey. Don't turn back. And there will be lots of reasons 
lots of arguments that sound reasonable that will tempt you to turn back. The Colossian Christians were facing such arguments. In particular, you might remember, like a month ago, I preached uh, the very first sermon in this passage, and I explained who the people were in the ancient city of Colossae that, that Paul was kind of writing to, to argue with, to contend with. They were a group of people who mixed a number of different ideas. Uh, I think they mixed some, some Jewish ideas about observing certain food laws, observing the Sabbath. They mixed in that with a, a dose of magic uh, and worship of angels. Uh, they really, really strongly focused on you could gain special knowledge, special secret knowledge that nobody else could have, knowledge from the spirit world, knowledge from angels and demons. And if you just came through them, they could put you in touch with these higher powers, and these higher powers would set you free. That was what they taught. And so the Colossian Christians were confused. They were overwhelmed. And so Paul is saying, hey, don't go that way. Don't be deceived by these reasonable-sounding arguments. Instead, you've begun to follow Jesus. Put those roots down deep. That's why we're calling this sermon Deep Roots, because we want to put our roots down deep in Jesus Christ so that we can resist the seductive powers of this age. God has called us to an act of holy resistance. Resisting those powers and principalities, the forces that the Bible describes that want to seduce us with reasonable sounding arguments. And Jesus calls us to resist by putting down our own deep roots. We do that in two ways. First, we put down deep roots in who Jesus is. We put down deep roots in who Jesus is. I'm getting that from verses 8 to 10. So let's look at verses 8 to 10 right now. Verse 8 says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. Paul reiterates his, his warning. Hey, don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. This time, he makes it sound even more ominous. He talks about slavery. Don't be enslaved. Don't be a, a prisoner of war to a philosophy that doesn't have Jesus at the center. Now, I want to say sometimes Christians might get tripped up over this word philosophy, and they'll think that Paul is saying that, that we shouldn't study philosophy or that you're, if you're a philosopher, you should get a different job. That is not at all what Paul is talking about. In fact, Paul's writings demonstrate that he was familiar with, with the writings of people who had come before him. You know, we always talk about guys like Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. Paul used a lot of the same rhetoric that those dudes did, especially the ones that had come before him. Paul is not anti-philosophy. Paul is anti-philosophy that doesn't have Jesus at the center. He's warning us not to be rooted in something that is not rooted in Jesus. So philosophy, basically, you could call it a life system, a worldview, a way of thinking, a way of life. He says, resist any philosophy, any approach to life that is based on empty deceit, human tradition, the elements of the world. He's saying, don't, don't go there. Don't go there. What are these elements of the world? Well, this is where um, I think it's very helpful to kind of tie in some things from other parts of Colossians and other parts of Paul's writings 
Bottom line is, Elements of the World is Paul's way of speaking about the spirit world. Uh, he's talking about angels. He's talking about demons. Uh, this was a very common way in Paul's writings and in the ancient world that they talked about it. Um, you, might, you might read through here and say, Stephen, it, it never once uses the word angel. It never once uses the word demon. But actually, they're mentioned multiple times throughout this passage. They just they use the common language of that day to talk about it. And one of the ways that they did that was saying elements of the world. What are these elements of the world? You see the Colossians, the people back then, they had this understanding that the, that the world, everything was kind of permeated with spirits and the spirits were like maintaining the natural order and they're holding it all together. They associated with the, them with the kind of the, the elemental forces like earth and wind and fire, okay? So this idea that there are these elemental principles of the world, these elements of the world is Paul's way of saying angels and demons. So what he's saying, don't be led astray by a philosophy that is rooted in the angelic instead of a philosophy that is rooted in Jesus. Put down deep roots in Jesus instead of in angels. Because this was a particular problem, as I've said, for the church at Colossae. I don't know if it had infiltrated the church or if it was just going around in the city, but like this was, this was the issue that they had to contend with. This was the issue, one of the issues that they had to grapple with. And so Paul speaks directly to it. It's interesting. He says the reason that they don't need to follow the angels is because they've got something better. Look at verse 9. Probably up here on the screen. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Paul says, look, you're worried about these angels. You're worried about these demons. Sometimes you're worshiping them, giving them too much credit. Sometimes you're worried about them and worried they're going to put a curse on your home. Either way, let me tell you about Jesus. Because he is fully God, a fully God, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Therefore, you need neither worship nor fear the spirit world. These elements of the world, these angels and demons, you don't have to adore them. You don't have to be afraid of them. Because Jesus is the king. He is God. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Now, um, people who work for the Treasury Department usually try to figure out how to spot a, a counterfeit bill. Now, I remember when I worked, uh, I've worked at a couple different fast food restaurants as I was coming up, and um, uh, we would get some $20 bills that were fake. You've probably seen some fake $20 bills or $50 bills in your time. Uh, so they would give the cashiers at the restaurants, they would give us these pens, right? And you, you mark the bill, and you hold it up to the light, and, and uh, sometimes the pen would run out, but I, I could still, if I held it up to the light, I could still tell what was real and what was authentic. But usually people who are really good, like official people who do this uh, in the Treasury Department, what they do is they become so thoroughly acquainted with the authentic that they can spot a counterfeit a mile away. If you want to train someone to spot counterfeit money, you don't give them a stack of 100 fake 20s. You give them one real 20. And you say, study this. 
know this. Feel it. Smell it. Touch it. Look at it. Become thoroughly acquainted with that which is authentic. Because when you know that which is authentic, you'll spot the fraud a mile away. That's what Paul is doing right here. He says, you guys are being led astray by angels and demons. So what am I going to do? I'm going to talk to you about how God's fullness dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. Why do you need angels and demons? Why do you need that which is fake? Why do you need that which is inferior when you have Jesus, the God-man? And then verse 11, or sorry, verse 10, he just kind of amps it up when he says, you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. Ruler and authority. This is another way of Paul's of talking about angels and demons. So he says, look, Jesus is the king over angels and demons. So why in the world would you either think you've got to worship them, or why in the world would you think that you have to tower in fear before him? Jesus rules over every ruler and every authority. Sometimes when we read this, kind of in the modern world, we might think, talking about like political figures that, that this verse is saying uh, for instance that Jesus is over President Trump and although that's true that's not what this verse is saying rulers and authority that is a reference to spiritual rulers and authorities that is a reference to angels and demons and yes Jesus is over everybody every governmental leader but here what Paul wants us to understand is that Jesus is over the cosmic powers He's over these invisible forces, the ones that we alternately either think, oh, we've got to know more about and we have to understand them and we have to gain their secret knowledge. That was the Colossian error. Or we're going to live in fear about the power that they might exert over our lives. Paul said the same solution for both sets of extremes is Jesus. You see, that's why Jesus is our theory of everything. Jesus explains all of life. And he's the king who rules over all. So he is the theory of everything. The one who makes sense of everything from A to Z, first to last. He's the Lord. He's the king over every square inch of life. We put down deep roots in who Jesus is. But second, we put down deep roots in what Jesus has done. We don't just put down deep roots in who Jesus is. But second, we put down deep roots in what Jesus has done. I'm getting this from verses 11 to 15. So let's, let's look at those verses now. Now, I'll, I'll say in advance, it's going to get a little complex here, okay? So just hang with me over these next four or five verses. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Let me stop right there. So each of these verses, 11 through 15, tells us something that Jesus has done for us, something that Jesus has accomplished for us. And if we're seeking to put down deep roots in what Jesus has done, we can take it a verse at a time and see, well, what is it that Jesus has done? Verse 11 says that Jesus has circumcised us. And that might sound a little weird to you, um, but let's, let's, let's go with the metaphor, all right? Verse 11, he says, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. So what in the world does that mean? Well, I'm going to give it my best shot. I'll be honest, this is a tough verse to understand. 
uh, but I'm going I'm to explain it the best, I, the best I can to the best of my ability. So circumcision is a cutting away of skin on a male sexual organ. It only happens to babies. Um, not everybody does it, but a lot of cultures choose to circumcise their male children. What Paul does here, because he's a circumcised Jew, and a lot of the people that he's writing to have a background of being circumcised Jews. So he understands that they're going to get this metaphor maybe better than you and I would get this metaphor. So what he says is, look, just like circumcision is the cutting away of skin, so there is a circumcision of the heart in which our sinful flesh is cut away. It's pulled back. That's what Paul was saying here. He's saying that when, when Jesus died on the cross, and when you identified with him, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's as if you were circumcised in Christ, and your sinful flesh, your sinful desires were put on Jesus and kind of cut away. Sounds painful. Except this is a metaphor. Our sinful heart is cut away. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Paul is, is also borrowing this metaphor from the Old Testament. Different Old Testament writers, different Jewish writers had used this same idea. There was real circumcision and then there was circumcision of the heart. And that's what Paul is getting at here. That we are circumcised in our heart that our sinful desires are cut away. Now, you and I know from experience that they're not totally cut away. We still want to sin. We still, we still want to give in to that which is evil. We still want to give in to the powers of this age when we are tempted. But the process at the cross means, or what happened at the cross means that there's a process of sanctification in my life whereby I am growing and becoming more like Jesus. Before the cross, before I believed in Jesus and was identified with what he did at the cross, I could not say no to my sin. I was a slave to my sin. But now, because of Jesus, I can say no to my sin. I might not. I might give in. I might sin. But because my sinful desires have been cut away, because there is a new victory, because my heart has been circumcised, as it were, now I have the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. That's what this verse is saying, I think. There's this circumcision of the heart that changes us from the inside out. Now, I just want to explain something here. Uh, the next verse talks about baptism. And some Christian traditions have used these two verses together uh, to teach that we should baptize babies. So I just want to address that uh, very quickly. We do not baptize babies um, here at Mosaic. Uh, because we believe that baptism is something that takes place when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ. Other Christian traditions do it differently. I can respect that, and, and there are really good and godly people who believe that. Where they kind of get that from um, is these two verses right here, among other things. Uh, the idea that they think that baptism is the new circumcision. So in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were called to circumcise their baby boys on the eighth day. So when you were eight days old... If you were a Jewish boy, you would go to the priest and you'd be circumcised. Um, if you're wondering why, we can talk about that later. That's not really the point of the sermon. Uh, but some, some Christians say, okay, so baptism is the new cir circumcision. So since we circumcise eight-day-old baby boys, we should baptize baby boys and girls and say that 
they're going to be part of the covenant family of God. There's a number of problems with that. I don't think that's what these two verses are saying. Uh, For one, uh, what the circumcision here is a circumcision of the heart. Then he kind of transitions and talks about a spiritual baptism. The word baptism simply means to be dipped or immersed in something. Okay? So if you've seen us do a baptism here at Mosaic, we know that we, we dip someone into the water. We plunge someone into the water. And when we do that, you are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But baptism doesn't always mean baptism in a literal sense in the Bible. It can also, just like circumcision, be a metaphor. And I think they're both being used as metaphors here. Paul is saying that there is a circumcision of the heart and there is a spiritual baptism in which we are placed into Christ. We are placed into his family when we believe in Jesus and we we are given this new reality. I think one very practical um, kind of pitfall of this idea that circumcision and baptism are kind of the, or that baptism is the evolution of circumcision. One struggle I would have with that, among, among others, is that in the Old Testament, you only circumcised boys. Um, so if, if, if uh, baptism really is the new circumcision, and you believe in baptizing babies, I would say that we would only baptize baby boys. But that's not the way anybody wants to practice it, because that seems uh, weird and wrong, and we wouldn't do it that way. Uh, And so I would just suggest that that is one reason, among others, why baptism is not the new circumcision. Now, if if that's kind of baked your noodle today, that's okay. It baked mine as I was uh, was studying it this week. If you have questions about that, we can can go deeper and talk more about circumcision and baptism uh, in in our missional families this week. Paul said, Jesus circumcised us. He cut away our sin through the cross. Jesus buried us with him and raised us with him through spiritual baptism. Verse 13 says that Jesus gave us life and forgiveness. Look at verse 13. When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. So Paul, Paul loves his metaphors. Here we're dead, right? We're like a zombie. And, and Jesus comes and he gives us life. We're, we're dead men and women walking, and the Spirit of God comes and makes us alive. And he makes us forgiven. We're given life, and we are forgiven, it says, all our trespasses. So how, how many is all? All. Sometimes, if we're honest, we can struggle and think, man, I just don't feel very forgiven today. Maybe you know that you're already a Christian. You, you, you've begun your spiritual journey. But you're like, I, I feel crushed under the weight of my sin. And I've, I've asked God to forgive me, but I still don't feel forgiven. Emotionally, I, I just, I'm not there. I feel ridden with guilt and with shame. I would encourage you, if that's you, to just memorize verse 13. That we have been forgiven all our trespasses. There is not a single trespass. There is not a single sin that you can commit that Jesus will not forgive. It's not a license to sin. It's an exhortation to holiness. Because I'm forgiven, I live holy. Because I'm forgiven, I live for Jesus. We put down deep roots in what Jesus has done. Verse 14 says that he erased our debt. That sounds kind of cool. A lot of us probably have debts. We have credit card debts. 
We have school loans. We have car notes. We have all kinds of debts. Sadly, debt has become a part of American society. We're just kind of used to it, and we drown in it. Paul uses the metaphor of debt to say that Jesus erased our debt at the cross. There was an there was a outstanding debt that we could not pay. And Jesus, this verse says, took that debt, took, that, uh, took the law that we could not obey, and he puts it up on the cross, and he cancels the debt. I think another way of understanding this, I, uh, I got an email as a, as a pastor. I, I get emails sometimes from um, government leaders who, who want me to pass on information, if applicable, to, to you guys. And I got one last week about how the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office was doing another um, uh, warrant forgiveness uh, deal. And so what they do is, uh, you know, sometimes people, um, even without realizing it, get warrants out for their arrest because uh, they had 32 parking tickets, um, half of which they didn't even know about. Uh, but they, they didn't know about half of them, didn't know about the other ones. And anyway, they accumulated long enough where the government said, all right, there's a warrant outstanding for their arrest. And so it's not a violent crime. It's not a, it's not a serious crime. You probably shouldn't go to jail for it. They just need to bring you in and you need to pay. Um, but uh, the, the district attorney every once in a while will say, all right, here is a, here is a warrant forgiveness day. It, so if it's not a violent crime, if it's not rape or murder or kidnapping or something serious like that, you can come in. And if it meets these certain parameters, you come in today, today only, like a, it's like a sale. You come in today only to the courthouse and your warrant is stamped and dismissed. Ever since Adam plunged the human race into sin, there has been a warrant outstanding for our arrest. And what God did at the cross is he took that warrant and he canceled it. He dismissed it. He said the price has been paid for sin and it was paid at the cross. This debt has been canceled. This warrant has been dismissed. You are now no longer under the threat of condemnation. Isn't that good news? That is awesome. I don't know of any better news than that. You see, we resist the seductive powers of this age by putting down deep roots in what Jesus has done. The last thing is verse 15, and here's where we get back explicitly to the topic of demons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Rulers Authorities, again, this is how Paul talks about the spirit world. And it says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities at the cross. He disgraced them publicly. The image here is a very common image that, that back in this day, 2,000 years ago, what the Greeks and the Romans, especially the Romans, what they would do uh, is they would conquer someone in battle. They would conquer this new territory, and so there would be a new king who would be subjugated. And they would get all his, his stuff, all his people, and they would parade them through. And there are, there are historical records that show us that sometimes these parades would take like three days. So day one is, is all the king's stuff, you know, his jewelry and his wardrobe and all this cool art collection and all this stuff. And it just parades through. And people come into the Colosseum and they watch it. They watch it going down the street, the, the main street there in Rome, and they, they see this spectacle. And then day two is the king's people, the king's family the king's harem, the king's slaves, and all of these people go parading by. 
and the, the Romans are mocking and jeering and celebrating. And then on the, on the last day, the conquered king comes riding through. It's an act of humiliation. He's publicly disgraced. That's the word that Paul uses right here. That's the metaphor that Paul picks right here. Paul says, Jesus at the cross took the demons and he gave them a butt whooping that they will never forget. And he paraded them through the streets of Rome. And he made a public spectacle of the powers that dared to revolt against King Jesus. See, if you're not familiar with the backstory, the Bible teaches that a third of the angels fell in sin against God. And it was one of those angels, Lucifer, who tempts Adam and Eve in the garden and the whole problem of sin and the curse gets initiated upon planet Earth. And what Jesus does at the cross is he strikes back. This is the heavenly empire striking back. He goes and he publicly defeats the powers and parades them before the entire world, before the entire universe, showing just how foolish they are. Jesus defeats the demons. So how do we resist the seductive powers of this age? By putting down deep roots in Jesus. And putting down deep roots not only in who he is, but in what he's done. And those two things, that's enough right there to keep me grounded and sane forever. Who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, let's try to apply it for the next several minutes as we end this sermon. Let's try to apply this to us. Before we get to that screen, Dan, um, a lot of you might be thinking, hey, I'm doing just fine uh, when it comes to the spirit world. I know it's there, maybe. Sometimes I think it's there, sometimes I don't. And you waffle between belief and agnosticism. I get that. I understand that. Many of these things are intellectually challenging to believe. So I want to be patient with those of us who might be struggling to believe. But I want to encourage you if you're a Christian, if you believe that this invisible world of rulers and authorities is real, as the Bible describes it in this passage, I want to encourage us to make sure that we're not ceding ground to the forces of evil without even being aware. And I'm going to give some examples. Some examples that are, I think, more obvious. And then some examples where we're going to have to think a little harder because they're less obvious. Some of us, I think, could be tempted to pursue psychic practices, to dabble in the occult, to seek out fortune tellers and palm readers, to call those hotlines. I see the I see the little brochures on the subway all the time. Am I denying that those things have power? Well, some of them are clearly con artists and shams, and it's just a money making thing. But some of them clearly do have power. The interesting thing about Christianity is that it, it never says that those other things don't have power. It's just saying that those things that have power are, are a, a pale shadow of the true and authoritative power, and that is Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible warns us against dabbling in these dark arts. And when you think about it, why would I seek dangerous wisdom and insight from the spirit world instead of the perfect wisdom and insight offered by the one who made the spirit? Then there's astrology. Sometimes uh, we can get all worked up over trying to figure out what our sign is and whether the stars are aligning just right so that we have this glorious cosmic destiny uh, this month. 
people ask me all the time, they're like, what's your, what's your sign? And uh, I always say, I don't know, because actually I have never in my life looked it up. But I tell them when I'm born, and then people tell me, they're like, oh, you're, you're this. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, but uh, it, it doesn't change my life, and I ought not dabble in it. Why? Think about it. Why would I need my stars to align when I serve the one who made the stars? There's been a, a long, ancient tradition associating spirits with the stars. I think that's even in the Bible. People struggled with that in the Old Testament. I think at the Tower of Babel, they were struggling with that. Why, why do I need the stars to align? I serve the creator who made the stars. And in fact, the one who knows, the only person who knows how many stars there are. The only person who has a name for all the stars. I don't need the stars to align. I've got a God who is holding those stars together, keeping them from bursting apart. And then there's, of course, the more mundane. There's superstition. Maybe you're like, I know I'm not supposed to dabble in like dark arts and stuff like that. But you're still afraid of black cats and walking through cemeteries. You're still worried that when you pass off your child to someone else that a demon's going to jump on them and kill your kid. These are real superstitions that I've heard. You know, why would I live in fear when I'm a child of the king who wisely and lovingly rules over all? What this passage does is it, is it hits people on both extremes. On the one hand, people are like worshiping the demons and the angels, thinking they've got to seek them out to get special knowledge. And Paul's like, don't do that. You have the king. You have the creator. Why would you worship the, the created beings? Then other people, they're like scared to death of the angels and demons. And they're like afraid to go out of their home, afraid there's going to be a curse on them. Paul's like, why are you afraid? He's not saying the, the power is not real. He says very much it is real. He's like, but why, why are you afraid? Don't you know that you serve the king? You serve the risen Lord? So we don't have to be afraid. You know, these things are kind of more obvious. So I want to give you three more examples. If I have time, maybe only two, we'll see. Some more examples that I think we have to put our thinking caps on a little bit as we explore this. Because demons are not always just going to be like blatant like they are in the Bible. There are principalities and powers that are at work, the Bible teaches, behind the systems and structures of our society. And they influence us in ways that we are not aware of. I think one very dangerous thing in America is affluence. People were understandably concerned when um, Sonia and I moved to Malia here. Uh, before, the day before we signed the lease at our apartment, there was a, there was a murder on our block. And we were moving to the most physically violent place we had ever lived before. And people expressed, is that a, is that a good place to raise your family? And uh, I understood their concern. I understood their love. But I think the suburbs where we lived was just as dangerous a spot. Maybe not for my body. Maybe not my kids' bodies, but my kids' souls. Because what happens is affluence and the American dream sounds so seductive and so alluring. That's why, that's why we work hard in America. That's why immigrants come to America for the opportunity. And we pursue jobs 
We pursue economic advancement. We pursue owning your own home. We pursue all of this stuff. And our soul is slowly eaten away. Our soul is slowly corroded by affluence. And we don't recognize the demonic at work in that. Because we think of the demonic as like weird stuff from the exorcist. When in reality, it's every ideology that exerts itself in American society at which Jesus is not the center. As Christians, we have to be on guard against affluence and what affluence can do to our souls. Second, I would say is pornography. We've talked about the sexual assault culture already today, and I think most of us, hopefully all of us, would say sexual assault is satanic and evil. But far too many Christians struggle with pornography. And I'm, I'm fully aware that it's not just a guy problem. Men and women are indulging in pornography and they're like, well, as long as I don't commit adultery, it's okay. It doesn't really harm me. And what we do is we are exploiting and objectifying men and women, especially women, many of whom are trafficked to this country illegally, and we are participating in the very sexual assault culture that we spent the last week excoriating. We don't see the hypocrisy of what we're doing. And we've just become comfortable with a certain amount of sexual sin. I only looked at pornography twice this week, so I'm having a good week, is how many people would, would view it. But that's not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus calls us to resist the seductive powers of this age, to draw a line in the sand, to say no. The last thing that I would suggest, actually, you know what? I'm just going to go into, into our next steps here. I'll hold the last one. We'll talk about admissional families, okay? Three next steps, ways that we can put down deep roots together. This is what I'd suggest on your card. I want you to pick up your card, your response card, and jot down one of these three things that the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. First off, we worship together. Second, we learn together. Three, we serve together. All of these, I said we do it together because I am not going to successfully resist the seductive powers of this age on my own. I need you. You need me. We worship together because this is how we are Paul said, look, you guys are freaking out over the angels and demons on the one hand, or you're worshiping the angels and demons on the other. The solution is to be rooted in who Jesus is and what he's done. Where can I go where I hear on a regular basis who Jesus is and what he has done? Anybody got any ideas about where you can go to hear who Jesus is and what he's done? Church, the family of God. You see, going to church, participating in our missional families, hanging out with the people of God, it has a formative influence upon us. The reason why we want our children to sing songs with us in worship is, it, I, I realize my kids don't understand all the words yet, but they understand some of them. And you, you string this together over multiple years, what we are doing is we are forming them, we are shaping them. And it's not just a kid thing, that's you and me too. What happens is, you string together 30, 40 years of following Jesus and hanging out with his people in the family of God, and that will shape you. You may not be aware of it. You may not be aware of the change from week to week, but something will take place in you because of the power of habit. 
Some worship together. We learn together. We've learned together today, hopefully, who Jesus is and what he has done. Sometimes you have Bible questions and you ask one another. Sometimes you ask me. Sometimes you ask Sean or Woodley or somebody else. I think it's great when we ask each other because it doesn't have to be me all the time with, with the answers. Maybe you've got the answers and somebody else has the question. But we learn together who Jesus is. And as we learn who he is, we're able to more successfully resist the seductive powers of our age. Finally, I think we serve together. We serve together here. We serve together outside the walls of this church because it's as we serve together that we're able to resist the devil. We resist the devil by forming new habits, forming new habits that says we are God's people and this is what we're going to do. So every couple of years, seems like there's a goat head that will pop up in Prospect Park. And uh, people will usually say that it has something to do with Santeria which is a, a Cuban um, sort of magic religion. Whether that's from Santeria or teenagers doing pranks, I don't know. Um, but there's a number of articles you can read about it, uh, and it usually happens. There's like one every year, one or two every year uh, in Prospect Park. And that can freak a lot of people out. I see some of you, your eyebrows are raised right now. <laughs> Goatheads in Prospect Park. Uh, on the one hand, some Christians will dismiss it, be like, there is nothing supernatural going on. There's a naturalistic scientific explanation for it all. On the other hand, some Christians will be like cowering in fear. There is a goat head in Prospect Park. I'm not coming out of my home for a week. I believe the power is real. The dark powers are real. This text tells us that they are, but do not, do not, do not. Live your life paralyzed in fear because of the powers, because Jesus is supreme. We can rest comfortably in the victory that he has won. Like I said, he put a butt whipping on the powers at the cross, and he, he publicly disgraced them. They, they walked through. He paraded them through the streets of Rome, and he showed that he is the king. And because he is the king, because he is our answer to everything, because he is the theory which explains all of life, we need not fear. We may not have all the answers. We may not understand how it all works. We may be struggling with the, with the intellectual challenges of following Jesus or the, or the obedience that is required to, to flesh out our faith. But as we sort through it, as we figure it out, we can rest comfortable in the victory that Christ has won. Let's pray.